So 1 Samuel 21, Psalm 56. Just titled this, When I Am Afraid. I base that off of Psalm 56, verse 3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, the word of God says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what is there present? And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto them, unto him, Of a truth women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yes, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there at that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? And they did not, did they not sing one another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, see the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And just one more verse. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. Now, Psalm 56. So David has gone to Nob for refuge from King Saul. King Saul's trying to kill him. He goes in such a haste that the high priest treats him as if he had come alone. He says, now David talks about these young men that were with him. And the high priest said, I can give you this bread. It's been hallowed as long as you've kept yourselves pure. And David says, we have kept ourselves pure. So there obviously were some other people with him, it seems. But the high priest treated it as if there wasn't a guard with him. He wasn't there in an official capacity as the king would have sent him. So the high priest is a little on edge about what's going on here because Saul is king. David is going to be the king. And there's this odd thing going on there. He, he asked for a weapon. He receives the sword of Goliath. He had chopped off Goliath's head. Now, what town was Goliath from? Gath. 
And in fleeing from Nob, he goes to Gath, which is a really odd place for him to go. In fact, the people of Gath say, didn't they sing about this guy? You got to see David walking into town there. Whose sword is he toting? Goliath's sword. This is their hero. This is the one, this is the guy who killed off their giant hero. And this is the one that they say about him. Is, is, is he the one they saying Saul killed his thousands, but this guy killed his 10,000? And I don't think they would say this in a complimentary manner about David. I think they're saying like, we can get this guy. In fact, they do try to get this guy. They bring him before their king and he presents himself a madman and, and sort of wiggles out of that situation and escapes and goes to the cave. Now we know in the cave, that's where David sort of comes up with his 400 mighty men and his life really does go differently from there. But, but in Gath, we have the recording from Psalm 56, this song that he writes there. In fact, uh, over the heading for me, and your Bible may have this heading as well for Psalm 56, to the chief musician upon Jonath, I don't know how to pronounce the rest of that, when the Philistines took him in Gath. So when David was taken by the Philistines to their king, this is what he said. Now let's read it. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. For they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger, cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Let's pray. Father, whatever comes in life, we're thankful that we have your word on it. As we come to this passage this morning, that's your inspired word, but it's also what you placed upon David's heart to pen and to sing and to make part of the Hebrew hymn book during his time of siege by the enemy in Gath. Lord, may we use this in our own lives. Certainly we are not anointed to be the next king of your people Israel. And certainly we are not fleeing from our lives from the previous king. But in many ways, our steps are ordered just this way. As we, the church, march toward the coming kingdom and live out the Christian life and do the work you have for us here. So may we use this passage this morning in a way that would be edifying to the church and glorifying to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 3 says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. I remember as a child how afraid I would get of things. I've told you before about taking the trash out at night. I had to go from the house to the street, small little city yard there. 
And I would creep out there with the trash can and get it to the street. And then I would just turn and scream to the top of my lungs all the way back into the house and shut the door and lock it behind me. Take a deep breath. And Sinead would be like, you're 35 years old. (laughs) But if you would be honest with me today, I think we could all admit that we become afraid sometimes, even as adults. The doctor's visits, the late night phone calls. I hate a late night phone call. You just know something. There's bad news on the other end of that line. As Americans, we've grown to be fearful at election times and because of the economy. So when I ask you this morning, church, what is it that you fear? David writes here that when he is afraid, he trusts in God. But, but to me, as I go to that, it just seems too easy to work. Does it feel that way to you? David says, what time I'm afraid? I'll trust in you. And we read the account, the account there. He just lives that out. But for me, it's, it just seems impossible to work. I'm dating myself here just a little bit, but I came along in the time when we went from landline wired phones to landline cordless phones. Can I get a witness there? Right? That's pretty neat. You could pick the phone up and it wasn't... Before that, you know, you had to do the old like... You didn't want your mom to hear the call that you were on with your buddies making plans or your girlfriend or whoever, right? So you would have this phone in the hallway. They all rang the same, bring, bring, you know, or whatever it was. I can't do the sound effects. And you had this long line that went all the way to the floor. And you'd wrap that around into the next room and shut the door, try to get in there at line, hope nobody was listening. But like my parents would just get on the other line somewhere, you know, they could hear in the house anyways. Well, the cordless phone sort of solved those problems a little bit. Somehow this thing magically sent the signal to this device that wasn't connected to any wire. There was no plugs. There were no wires. The base was, and you, as long as you stayed in distance, you could, I'll never forget one day, my neighbor, I saw her walk out of her house. She was always on the phone, always on the phone. Talk, 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 talk. And she gets in her car on the cordless, not a cell phone, right, kids? We're not talking about cell phones. She gets in her car on the cordless phone and drives out of her driveway talking on this phone call. A few minutes later, I see her embarrassingly show back up to her house and put that thing back on the the receiver there as if she could have just talked going down the street. And then cell phones came out and all of this. But I remember even as a boy just thinking like, how's that work? My curiosity got the best of me. It it seemed like it was too easy. It was too good to be true. How could this be the case? Technology often brings us that way. But so does doctrine. Often with doctrine, we read it, we're aware of what it says, but to live it out is a hard thing for us. What David says here, when I'm afraid, I trust in God. I want to take a look at this passage this morning and see if our minds could change on what is true and what is too good to be true and what is too easy before we go to lunch today. We find David here under constant attack His foe is trying to do him in, fighting all day with many coming against him, he says. The first thing David does in verses 1 and 2 is he cries out to God because his life is in danger. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. He says twice here, that a man or his enemies would swallow him up. The Hebrew word where we translate swallow up here is in the deadly sense, to crush or to trample upon. 
I, I joke sometimes about how in the in the end times when God and his people were on white horses and I'm going to just be like, Lord, can I get a go-kart? Because I don't want to ride on the white horse. Well, this is part of the reason. These horses trample people. Like I'm, I have fear. I know I shouldn't. Maybe I should just trust in the Lord. But that is the sense that David is writing about here when he says they would swallow me up. We've already said he's under this Philistine siege in Gath. Back in Psalm chapter 52, he had been forced to escape from King Saul because he was trying to kill him. And he wrote that Psalm. Now we read Psalm 56, which we've already read from 1 Samuel, where he went to Nob, the town of the priests. And Ahimelech is there. Now you read about Doeg, which I think is the Hebrew for Doug. It's probably not, but in my mind it is. I was reading this, I was just thinking about Doug the whole time. But you read about Doeg the Edomite. Now there's a study. Figure out who the Edomites are. Figure out what kind of people they are. And you might not be surprised at Doeg the Edomites' actions. But he was present, so he was there. He was a part of the worship even. But it does read in 1 Samuel 21 that it was delayed by God. So that's unique. But he overhears, he sees David there. And what does Doeg do? Oh, this will get me in good with King Saul. So he goes back and he reports to King Saul that David is there. What does King Saul say to do? Go kill the priest. And Doeg kills the priest and 85 other priests. Actually, they bring them to Saul and he does it right there before him. Saul says, somebody kill this guy. Nobody will. And he says, Doeg, you kill this guy. And so he does. He's a bad guy. Now there's a lapse of time between this visit to Nob, and then this report of his visit to Saul by Doeg. If you, be, if you keep reading in chapter 22, you'll, you'll get on more into that. First Samuel tells us of these two instances that filled this interval. The first is where he goes to Gath, and then the second is where he goes to this cave in Adullam. All of these people begin to gather around him. It's unique who gathers around David in this time. Now, there are some mighty ones that gather there, but it's also his family, the discontented and the debtors, the scriptures say, gather around him there. But at the end of that time, he's collected about 400 people who, well, well of the people, 400 who are the valiant men who become the core of his army. Psalm 56 is prior to that time in the cave. It's this time in Gath. I want you to note three things about this time. First, that David was alone. Now, certainly we can sense that as we read through Psalm 56, but we also find that the, the priest, Ahimelech, says to him, like, you're the servant of the king. Why, why are you here by yourself? I've already noted that there were some young men with him, or at least they made note of that. But he had fled from Saul without his his group, his envoy, or whatever you want to call it there. He, he didn't have any soldiers. He didn't have food because he says, is there any bread here to eat? And the priest says, well, there's not bread, bread, but there's holy bread. And then he says, do you have a weapon, spear or sword? He gives him Goliath's sword. So we would understand in Psalm 56 is writing here that David goes to Gath kind of on his own. Him, the sword from Goliath, but he's taking this self in just... By himself. The second thing I would point out to you that he was desperate. Gath is the home of Goliath. It, it, it floors me why he would go there. Surely, in all of the places David could go, there are other places to go than the very place where the people live who he killed their hero. 
You just, I mean, you don't show back up there. This is where he went. I was reading a scholar this week and he said that David went there in the courage of despair. Well, that was good wording. Ever done something in the courage of despair? Maybe it just seemed like the least likely position you should take or the, the least likely routes that you could take, but where else am I going to do go? What else am I going to do here? So in the courage of despair, he made himself part of Gath. So he's desperate. He was alone. He was afraid. Now, verse 3 says, What time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. We also read in 1 Samuel 21, verse 12, that he was sore afraid of the king of Gath. So David was alone. He was desperate. He was afraid. Now, this psalm is not about those things. This psalm is about the reaction when faced with such things. James Montgomery Boyce writes of Psalm 56 saying, It is not merely about loneliness and fear. It is about faith that gives victory over those very real states and terrible emotions. So here's a writing about the victory rather than the struggle of faith. That's what I need. When I'm afraid, when I am questioning, when I am alone, when I am desperate, when I'm in great despair, when I'm without resources, I need my faith to be activated. And David cries out here first, Lord, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, O God. The Hebrew term that we have here is, is not actually like just merciful. The, the word is actually mercy, grace, kind of one and the same. It's a, it's a premise. Like we would understand, we, we like to directly translate things, but there are often words that there is no good direct English translation for, and we come up with like this idea, this premise, or it might take us an entire phrase to get to where they might have just one word for it there. There's good English um, logic for that, but I don't want to get into that. There's some things we say that other societies were like, well, what are they talking about? And then we, could, we would say back there, well, We'd have to give them several sentences to explain why we just use this one word or this term in this way, right? The Hebrew term here is Hanan. The the meaning conveys mercy and grace. So David, what what it is is favor. That's the best way to think of it. David is asking God to give his unmerited favor to him. So we would know that means like in the new, new covenant, the grace and the mercy that brings us to salvation. But David already considers himself one of God's. He's, he's in there. He's not asking for God to spiritually save him or to forgive his sins. He's asking for God to help him. He's saying, God, give me, please give me undeserved help. Show me your favor. Now, as New Covenant believers, sometimes we get to the place where we think, well, he saved me from my sins. He's promised me eternity with him in heaven. He's already given me his favor. I don't need to ask for anything else. In fact, I might be out of the way to ask for anything else. But then his son came and lived on earth and told us exactly how to deal with the father. He said, when you pray to the father, pray like this and laid out for us exactly what we should ask for, and not ask for and said such things such as ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open unto you. Jesus lived and talked in his relationship to God and taught others to use great faith. So this is what David is doing there. He's crying out to God and he says, be merciful to me. Show me, please show me favor. I think we all get there at times. 
Maybe that's where you are right now. Help God, my life is in danger. Usually that doesn't mean like living or dying. It just means my comfort zone. The life that I live, my normal manner of life is being affected. So I need your help in this regard. But at times it might mean my actual living and dying, my physical state of being. So I'm asking for help. Well, the first thing we could take away from Psalm 56 is cry to God as David does. God, will you be merciful to me? I don't deserve anything from you, but would you show me favor right now in this situation? Second thing we find from David is a complaint. Now, isn't this just counter to how we often operate? We've got our little Christianese books on how to be. We probably read our Christian literature more than we actually read God's bestseller. And they've told us all of these ideas of what we should be like to be a Christian. And probably one of the things we've gleaned from that are from coming to church or from going to Sunday school classes or wherever else we're getting our information is, oh, Christians should never complain. You probably give me some verses that talk about that. I, I sing to you, you grumble on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, grumble on Thursday too. Right? We, we know these songs. But in reality, we do find God's people interacting with Him at times. And they do offer up a complaint. But notice verse 5. David says, after he cries out for favor, he says, Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps. Then they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger, cast down the people, O God. He lodges a complaint here. Even in amidst his cry for help, there's this other thing that he just needs to get off his chest. Well, we learn from this in all of Scripture that God is a great listener. He says, every day they twist my words. They have no thoughts of good toward me. It's only ever evil. They conspire to bring me hurt. They're gathering to make plans. They're hiding out to watch me. They know my steps. They aim to hurt me. So what is David saying? God, are you going to let them get away with this? Oh, that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? But then I don't want to be a Christian. I just want to be a disciple of Christ and do what the Word says. That's what David was. We need to stop letting our religion get in the way of our relationship. We aren't told that God does get angry or even that He does anything. But by the end of this passage, David is comforted and making vows before God just in the practice of exercising his faith and laying this on God's shoulders. So if you need to complain this morning, I would encourage you to pray. Give others the sunshine, tell Jesus the rest. Lodge your complaint to the highest authority in existence. Isn't that a great thought? He's above the sheriff, he's above the mayor, he's above the governor, he's above the president. He's above any other authority upon the face of the earth. He is sovereign God. Finally, we see confidence. So there's a cry. There's a complaint. But all of this is intermingled with confidence. So back up to verse 3 and 4. What time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. So his first statement of confidence is, though I'm afraid or when I am afraid, when I find myself fearful... I will put my trust in you. 
I have put my trust in you, so I will trust you. Experiencing fear from time to time is not unusual for God's people. And when we fear, we, we react in certain ways. We fight, we flee, we freeze, we panic. David says, I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to allow this fear to activate my faith. Trust is to rely upon God, to be secure in God. John MacArthur says, confidence in the Lord is a purposeful decision, replacing an emotional reaction to one's circumstances. So when we're afraid, but trusting, then we are refreshed, we are protected, we are surrounded by mercy, and we cannot fail. Verse 4, he says, my trust is in God and His Word. Because of that, I'm not going to fear what man can do to me. What, what can flesh do to me if I put my trust in God and in His Word? Now, we have God in the English here. The, the name for God that is translated is actually Elohim, which speaks to God's supreme strength and power. So I have put my trust in God who is supreme in power. What's the theological term there? Thanks. I was feeling really like a horrible pastor here. You guys don't even know that one. That's basic. Omnipotent, omniscience. What's the other one? Omnipresent. There we go. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. You've got to have those like... Okay, let's start back. Justificate. <laughs> God, who is omnipotent. That's where my faith is placed. In fact, I don't even like to think about it like that. It's, I'm misconveying that to you as if, oh, I'm all of a sudden afraid. So here, God, I've been holding on to my faith and you take it for a while. No, that's not how David operated. It's my faith has found this resting place and it's in God who is all powerful. So when I feel weak, I know that he is strong. But it's definitely not with man. It's not with circumstances. It's not even with David's own wit. No, his wit was useful in Gath. He got in this scenario and he began to just kind of drool down his beard here and act like a madman and write with his finger on this gate. And the king said, why'd you bring me a madman? And they said, no, no, this is the guy. He's got the sword. He killed Goliath. And the king said, what do you want me to do with him? He might have been that at one point, but that's not who he is anymore. So his wit was awfully helpful. But in David's mind, in David's actions, in his writing here, he says, no, my, my trust was not in my wit. My trust was in God. He believed God would bless his actions. But your actions can be much more deliberate and confident when your trust is in God and not in your actions. That's why he could say, what can man do to me? And really, rhetorically say that because he knew the answer was nothing. Man could do nothing to me. Now, how does David know that? Where does he get the knowledge of this? Well, that goes back to him saying, in God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. The word. Three times here in just this one song, he talks about his reliance upon the word of God. Verse 4, he talks about the word. Verse 10, in God I, will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. Now this is a psalm, so I guess you can take this like the 
some of the modern praise songs that say the same seven verses 11 times? Does that get on anybody else's nerves besides mine? My kids know it's coming. We're in the car and we're listening to this worship song and it's gone for four, half, four and a half hours. Really four and a half minutes, but it feels like it's gone four and a half hours. And they're just one more time. And then the worship leader on the recording says, let's say that again. Like, no, I like it in the phone. Uh, in the phone, I can just say, skip, <laughs> go to the next track. If, if you ever, all right, I'll just stop. If you ever get on a microphone around here and that's how you decide to do things, Miss Wiggins, and I will cut you off real quick, right, Miss Wiggins? She'll stop playing and I'll say, let's sing Amazing Grace. <laughs> but to, to your defense here, that's what David does in verse 10. That would be his line. In God will I praise his word. In God will I praise his word. Let's say that again, <laughs> right? That's what he's doing there. Apart from the word of God, we don't know what God is like. We don't know what he's promised for us. But his word reveals him and his promise to us. If you'll make your premise in life, what am I ultimately getting from God, from his word, from his spirits indwelling, from his salvation, from his forgiveness of sin, from his blessing in life, from the eternal hope that he gives from us? What are we ultimately getting from God? you'll make your premise that I'm ultimately getting God, that sure does help with everything else. I don't get to have this distant relationship with this deity who sometimes put good or sometimes puts bad into my life. And someday in the future, everything will be perfect. And, and I'll get to kind of live down the street from him. We've allowed bad gospel songs to give us that theology. Someday yonder we'll never more wander, but walk on streets that are pure as gold. I want a mansion just over the hilltop that's silver lined. Let me tell you, pray to God for favor, not for that. You got it in your mind from John 14. Great, great passage of comfort. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, you can believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He never actually said he's going to prepare a mansion for you. He said he's going to prepare a place for you. In the Hebrew understanding, it would have been, my father has great resources, so much the so that I'm going to be able to add a room on the side to his house so that when I take you as my bride, we can live there together and be a part of his family. Whew. That's way better than a gold and silver mansion down the street on Hallelujah Square. You might want to live like that, but I don't. I'm not intending to go to heaven to see Jack or to see Doug or to see my granny, which will be great, I believe. I just She's going to have me a pecan pie when I get there. See, there I go. <laughs> I'm going to write a bad gospel song about that. You want me to sing it? She's up in heaven in her rocking chair. She'll have a pecan pie prepared for me there. <laughs> now somebody say amen and we'll say we worshiped. What did we worship? Human ideology. 
What is the actual comfort? Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going away. And you know the way and you know where I go. And Thomas, boy, Thomas, he's the one who really gets down to things. He says, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, because you know me. This is what David is saying here. He's not saying, oh, because God has done this before in me in life, I believe he'll do it again. He's saying, no, I know God. And he and I, we're together. I have his spirit. And because of this, my trust is not in anything temporal. It's not in anything earthly. It's not in anything that God may or may not do in my life. My my trust is just in him. I know this because of his word. He had God's words given to him at least. Now, you got to think in David's time, he wasn't toting around like a a leather-bound copy of the Bible that he went down to Walmart and got. We're very blessed people. I mean, we get to, what color do you want? What translation do you want? What kind of notes do you want inside it? Man, we've got it made. David for sure had the word of God through Samuel, the prophet. He'd come down to his house and he had said, God is going to make you king. So he knew God's word in that regard. He had learned about God. We know that he would have had some portion of the scriptures up to this point. And, and the, the, the tradition in their day was by a certain age, a young man would have been taught what they had of the scriptures fully, almost to memory, right? Because prior, up to a point, they weren't pinning it down and passing it along. They were verbally, had verbal manuscripts. Is that a good way to say it? They were passing the word of God along that way. Now, I believe David lived in a time where there was written word. And I'm not saying that that's not the case. But I'm just making the point here that it wasn't quite the way we have it, but he still had the word. And then we know David, he was being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he wrote down a lot of the word in these Psalms. The word contains all we need to know about spiritual things. How do we know God? The word. How do we know about God? The word. How do we know about the promises of God? In the word, we read the word. And then Boyce adds to this. Equally important, we have the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of what has been written as well as the ability to apply it in specific areas of our lives. Praise the Lord. Verse 8, he says, God, I know you keep an account of my life. This is a precious verse. Thou tellest my wonderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? He says, hear and remember my prayer. Take account of all my sufferings and soon vindicate. David knows God will never forget nor ever be indifferent to the cares of any one of his much beloved people. Put your. Maybe he's saying here, you take down an account of every time I'm tearful, like I'm, I'm so broken hearted that liquid comes out of my eyes. Or Lord, you're 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 bottling up these tears. You're, they would have had not bottles then. They would have what we would call wineskins. Now you're, you're, you're putting these tears into these spiritual wineskins, so to speak. Are these things not written in your book there? I think that's the, the thing. He said, you know me, you're keeping an account. Verse nine, when I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know for God is with me. I know you will show me favor because you are for me. It is nice. To know that somebody is for you, isn't it? It's a great comfort. It's a great feeling. Well, know that God is for you. 
Verse 10 and 11, he says, my trust is in God. Again, that it's in his word. He says it in a sense here that man can't touch that. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do to me. And then finally, commitment, verse 12 and 13. So he cries, he complains. And we end here with this commitment. He's confident, but he, but he adds a commitment to the end of this. He verbally commits to stick with all of this that he has just confidently spoken. Thou vows, thy, thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Now it is unique that he says, thy vows. It's David making the vow here. It's David's vow, but there's a meaning conveyed. To David, it's as if he's just following a promise God has already made and he's confident God will fulfill. I think that's very important. We, we can often mess that up in the human sense when it's all about us. It's my vows. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to operate. It's not about us. It's about him. What has he already said in his word? This is what we should be praying to him right here. So David says, thy vows. He cried, he complained, he spoke in confidence, but now he calls all of that God's. He says, these are, these are yours. And I'm confident that you will fulfill it. He's writing in anticipation. I'm going to give you thanks ahead of the time of my deliverance. Your vows are upon me. So I'm going to render praises to you. I'm going to trust fully that you will deliver me. Maybe he's saying, I'm going to praise you ahead of the time. I'm just going to go ahead and say, thank you, Lord, for what I believe you're going to do. Or he's saying, I vow before you that upon my deliverance, I will praise you. It's one of the two. I'm not sure. Maybe both. But we have this same access to God that David did. But in the end, it comes down to our level of commitment. So Psalm 56, a cry. A complaint, confidence, and commitment. The cry sounds good, doesn't it? I get into trouble. I go through a rough patch. With David as my example, I can cry out to God and I can ask for his favor. The complaint really sounds good to me. Well, when I've got a complaint, I like to let somebody know about it. I'm a little bit of a stickler in some ways and a little bit OCD about certain things. Not a lot of things, but... Some things. It has bothered me that more of you said over here than over here today. It's just not really. I'm just kidding. But a complaint. God, here I am, just little old me. And I'm trying my best to serve you, but look what's going on. Now we know he's all knowing, we know he knows, but boy, it's just sometimes nice to be able to say, God, did you see? Do you know? The confidence part of this is good in theory. I mean, the cry, that sounds nice. And the complaint really can kind of get those spiritual juices flowing. But confidence, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to believe God is working. It's almost like if we, if we will, we could just will things to work out. That's good on Sunday and harder on Monday. It takes commitment. That's the tough part of this. We have to buy into the effect that we are on God's side and then write it out. Come what may. In our time of response this morning, if I ask you, who needs to cry out to God? Well, no doubt, we all have something we could bring before Him. If I said, who needs to lodge a complaint? 
You could reply and say, well, who doesn't need to lodge a complaint? Well, who is confident that God will see you through? There the list begins to shorten. We need to work on that. And then as I say, who's committed no matter what? Probably very few of us who could write our names on that list. You crying will never bear fruit until you're committed. Your complaint will never seem heard until you are committed. Your confidence will constantly dwindle and have to be stoked until you are committed. But I'm afraid. That's how David started here too. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. When you are afraid, this is when you need commitment the most. When you're committed and afraid, you can look fear in the eye, knowing that God is for you. So I just finished this morning asking, do you trust God? The Bible teaches us that God will take care of you if you belong to him and are a follower of Jesus Christ. Psalm 37, 5, I have been young and now I am old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Psalm 55, 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Would you stand and pray with me? Where do you find yourself this morning? Maybe you've just been in avoidance and you just need to cry out to God. Or maybe you've cried and you've lodged your complaint, but your commitment is not letting you have the level of confidence that you wish for. Maybe it's a time to buff up your commitment. Let's bow and pray and ask our God for help.